The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine, and in today's episode, we will be paying tribute to Broadway star Nick Cordero, who died after a protracted battle with COVID-19 on Sunday, talking about why so many summer dance festivals actually had to cancel their in-person events really early, and then about the virtual plans that they've put together instead reacting to Hamilfilm and discussing why there aren't more musicals streaming right now since clearly there's demand for that content, and hearing from dancer and director and singular being Omari Wiles. Um, before we dive into all of that, just a reminder to first sign up for our daily newsletter, which is the Dance News Digest. You can sign up at thedanceedit.com and also to follow us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit because we have lots of ways to get the dance world's news to you. We don't want you to miss out on any of it. Um, speaking of dance news, um, we'll begin the episode as usual with a quick dance headline rundown, just touching on the top newsy stories from the past week. Uh, Courtney, can you start us off? Sure thing. So in a surprise move, the UK government has pledged an arts and heritage relief package of 1.57 billion British pounds. Uh, so that's roughly 1.98 billion US dollars at current exchange rates. Um, so it is worth bearing in mind that details are still being broken down and analyzed in terms of how these funds will be distributed. Uh, you know, it's not just going to be covering arts and performing arts, but also heritage sites and the like. But as Ian B. Artistic Director Tamara Rojo said to The Guardian, this package gives our sector a fighting chance for survival. Tentatively optimistic. And on the flip side of government aid for the arts community, in an effort to make up for a roughly $9 billion loss in tax revenue due to COVID-19, New York City leadership just announced they would cut arts spending by nearly 11% in this year's budget. A pretty significant blow. And that's America. Uh, also in U.S. budget-related news, uh, recently released records show that elite cultural institutions with big budgets and donor pools received some of the largest coronavirus relief loans from the U.S. Small Business Association's Paycheck Protection Program, intended to help nonprofits pay their employees. Uh, in response to a request for comment from the Washington Post, a spokesperson from Carnegie Hall, one of those institutions that receive such funds, pointed out that performing arts are expected to be among the last to recover and that the financial impact has and will continue to be significant. Um, in lieu of its annual workshop performances, the School of American Ballet announced it will stream performances from prior years, which, you know, keeping an eye out, you can catch many of the young dancers who went on to become both New York City Ballet standouts and standouts in the ballet community across America. That's something to look forward to. 
Uh, and this is not so much a headline as a, yes, we need to shout this out. Anna Halperin, <laughs> who undeniably shaped the evolution of postmodern dance in America, is turning 100 this Monday, July 13th. Uh, happy birthday, Anna, happy from birthday. all of us. Happy birthday. Oh, man. An, a, an icon. I mean, look it up in the dictionary. There she is. <laughs> um so, oof, this is a rough segue. From artists we are incredibly grateful to still have with us to artists who were taken from us too soon. Um, in our first segment, we'd like to honor Broadway actor and dancer Nick Cordero, who died on Sunday after battling COVID-19 for more than three months. He was only 41 years old. He had no underlying health conditions before contracting the virus. Um, so it was definitely a shock. Cordero um, was featured in several Broadway shows, but his big break was really in 2014 when he played Cheech in Bullets Over Broadway, Susan Stroman's Bullets Over Broadway, um, a role that earned him both a Tony nomination for Best Performance by an Actor in a Featured Role in a Musical, and also an Astaire Award nomination for Outstanding Male Dancer in a Broadway Show. Um, Stroh's choreography made really excellent use of his really excellent tap skills. Cordero's struggle with the virus was documented by his wife, Amanda Klutz, um, a fellow dancer. They actually met during Bullets Over Broadway. She led Instagram sing-alongs of either Elvis Presley's Got a Lot of Living to Do or Cordero's own song, Live Your Life, every day during Cordero's illness, um, sometimes accompanied by their one-year-old son. And Cordero's death is a reminder that even though many members of the dance community sort of consider themselves relatively safe from the virus, you know, dancers are generally younger, athletic, healthy people. Um, they're absolutely not safe. Yeah, I think this was, you know, the whole musical theater community really followed along on Nick's fight because his wife was posting these really vulnerable, honest updates almost every day on social media. So everyone was following him and rooting for him and pulling for him and participating in those daily sing-alongs that she was holding of the waitress song, Live Your Life. And I think, you know, we were all there pulling for him. So this was a really huge loss. And I think part of what's so frightening about this is you know, he does not fall into any of the categories that we've been hearing qualify you as high risk for having severe COVID-19 symptoms. Um, he was on the younger side, again, you know, athletic, healthy, and also did not have any underlying health conditions that would point to he's going to have a harder time with this. Um, and I think many of the many, many, many tributes that went up on Twitter and Instagram over the weekend uh, kind of scattered and among them were calls for like, guys, you are not immune just because you're younger, like wear a mask, protect your community. Yeah. And the, the scary thing is that it seems like as more and more data, we got access to more and more data, cases like these are apparently becoming more and more common. Wash your hands, wear your mask, keep listening to health experts. Um, and if you want to have a good cry, Google the video of Nick and Amanda dancing together at their wedding. They did an incredible wedding dance that it just, I mean, two Broadway performers at their best. We'll miss you, Nick. Sending nothing but love to Amanda and Elvis. Um, in our next segment, we'd like to talk about summer dance festivals, which we are missing acutely right now, um, since this is the time most of them would normally be in full swing. 
Um, Dance Magazine ran an interesting piece this week explaining why several of the major festivals had to cancel their big in-person events several months in advance. Um, Three of them actually made their announcements on the same day, on March 31st. So we want to talk about that, and then we also want to touch on the virtual programming that some of them are offering instead. Yeah, so to quote the writer Rachel Rizzuto, who came out with such a great lead for this story, uh, March 31st, 2020, it was the day the summer dance festivals died. A little bleak, but she talked to the directors of Jacob's Pillow, American Dance Festival, and Bates Dance Festival, all of whom canceled their performances on the same day. Uh, to talk about why they did that. And even though it wasn't a coordinated effort, they had all been sharing information together and they came to the conclusion that we're going to start getting seasonal staff in sooner than later and we don't feel like we can safely bring people in until probably August. On top of that, um, they have lots of international performers at these festivals. Visas weren't getting funded. So ultimately, they made the choice that this is the safest thing we can do for our community and the best thing we can do for the artists is to cancel this far in advance and uh, get measures in place. I thought something interesting that the article touched on, which was like totally my experience, was it was crazy how quickly we went from, do you think that these events would ever possibly cancel this summer to, of course, they have to cancel this summer. Like it felt like it was a week and a half in between those two thoughts being in my head yeah shoshona courier said it was like a two and a half week gap between like hmm we might have to cancel and yep we're canceling everything's done and it's you forget how significant these cancellations are too like i think the story says it's the first operational break for these three festivals in their combined 212 year history and yet now it's it seems totally normal I do have to say, though, as like a longtime Vail Dance Festival groupie, it's pretty exciting to get to see them streaming some of their stuff that has never been seen outside of Vail before. Like, I've never gotten to see the performances on the iconic outdoor Vail Dance Fest stage, and now I'm going to get to watch those, which is exciting. Yeah, so Vail Dance Festival, which uh, they did cancel as well a little bit later because they don't start their season until end of July, beginning of August. Uh, They just announced what their summer programming digital lineup is going to be. And it includes a lot of performances that were only ever seen previously on the Vail stage. Um, uh, Jacob's Pillow is doing actually an even more extensive free eight-week digital festival, all kinds of performances. There's a podcast, there's classes, tons of different offerings. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how this might shape these festivals in future years as well. Um, Because as we're saying, these digital offerings do allow a larger audience to benefit from the pretty incredible dance on display at these festivals. And it's kind of in the spirit of an international festival to give some kind of digital access to a broader international audience. I was looking at, again, the Veil lineup, and they're premiering a new work by Bobby Jean Smith featuring Calvin Royal III, Melissa Toogood, and Bobby Jean Smith dancing in it herself. So I was like huge for my quarantined summer lineup. <laughs> well, I think that's always the thing we look forward to about Veil is Damien Wotzel does these crazy alchemical combinations of dancers and choreographers you wouldn't necessarily have thought to put together, but he brings them together and you never quite know what magical thing is going to happen. And we're still getting a little taste of that magic this summer. Even even those of us who can't make it to the mountains. So small silver linings. Um, so in our fourth segment, we want to talk about Hamilton. 
Um, or actually, we talked a ton about Hamilton in a previous episode. <laughs> Instead, we want to use the Hamilton film, which premiered last Friday on Disney Plus, as kind of a way into a conversation about the streaming of Broadway shows, because clearly there's a huge demand for this kind of programming, given the success of, of Hamilton film. Um, so first of all, where can you stream musicals right now? And then more importantly, why isn't there more of this kind of streaming happening? Why can't we have nice things? <laughs> I mean, the simple answer is rights negotiations. There are some musicals, it's limited, that are streaming. You know, Marquee TV and Broadway HD both have a selection of Broadway offerings. Um, but there was a great New York Times piece recently laying out the the difficulty of actually making these shows available for streaming platforms. So logistically, it's usually very difficult. And also, it's usually prohibitively expensive to film a live stage production. I, cynic that I am, I was only momentarily shocked to learn that capturing a Broadway show costs five to ten times more than it would to capture a show overseas. So that kind of financial outlay is just too much for most shows. I think they also noted that Hamilton's lead producers, who are all millionaires thanks to the success of this like once-in-a-lifetime show, underwrote the filming of that production themselves, which is kind of how it was possible. Well, and as we've said previously on this podcast, uh, pro like producing Broadway shows is insanely expensive as it is, and a lot of them don't actually break even, much less become profitable. And then there are the issues of securing permissions from the creative teams, the producers, the theater companies, all of the casts, the unions. That's a ton of work and negotiation. Because we want people to get paid for their work. That is critically important. Um, and then some people worry about the effect of streaming musicals that are still playing, what that might do to ticket sales. Particularly for tours, I think. Yeah. It's part of that yeah, concern. A ton of shows have very long and very profitable touring lives. I think on the flip side of that, though, I've seen a lot of discussion, especially on like musical theater, Broadway fan Twitter, about how streaming musicals are so much more accessible, not just financially, but also geographically for people with small children who can't sit through performances, people with vision or hearing impairments, people with sensory insensitivities. There's a lot of different audiences that don't have the capability to make it to a Broadway show in New York City. And for them, the chance to see these performances is life-changing. Absolutely. And also, again, you know, everyone being stuck at home during this pandemic has really shifted the dialogue around this. Mm -hmm. It feels like a very different proposal than when we if we had talked about this a year ago. Oh, absolutely. I think it's worth mentioning that there are some designed for the screen film adaptations of musicals in the works that we at least have to look forward to. Like, do we want to geek out about The Prom for a second with its epic casting? Although I know Courtney has a, a caveat there. I mean, I am so excited for The Prom and the casting is ridiculous. Like Meryl Streep, James Corden, yes. But I am still a little bit bitter that the utterly brilliant Caitlin Kinnunen isn't playing Emma in the film adaptation after she was everything uh, on Broadway. Uh, though, of course, I am also excited to see University of Michigan alum Joe Ellen Pellman take on the role. But Caitlin Kinnunen deserves all the things. Come on. There's also um, the I'll... meta. Oh, I know. <laughs> I think we're going. Sorry, I just want to say the line. Yeah, please, please say it. Because <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, I think you actually coined it, Cadence. Mean Girls, the musical, the movie musical. Is that it? The movie, yeah. the movie musical? <laughs> mean Girls, the movie, the musical, the movie musical. It's very meta. Just for those of you who are not yet aware of this, it's the 
They've announced that they are filming the Broadway musical take on Mean Girls. Originally a movie. Originally was a movie. (laughs) Which before that was an SNL skit that got out of control. Um, Wait, time out. Seriously? How did I completely miss that it started out as an SNL skit? Well, Tina Tina Fey like wrote it as an SNL skit, like based on a uh, book that she had read, and then like it just kind of gr- kept growing and growing in concept, and then ended up getting produced as a feature film instead. So, just to be clear, we went from a book to an SNL skit to a movie to a musical to a movie musical. To my understanding, <laughs> rivaled only by High School Musical, the musical, the, musical, the series. The series. <laughs> Which I still can't believe it's real. We're just leaning into that, leaning into that now. Um, And then, of course, there is West Side Story coming up soon and The Heights coming up soon. There are things to look forward to. Um, All right. Taking a breath. So now we have the next installment in our voice memo series, which we're calling Dancer Dispatches. Um, Each week, we're asking a dance artist from a different corner of the dance world to share what they're working on, what they're thinking about, and what's inspiring them. This week, we have a message from Omari Wiles, um, also known as legendary Omari Nina Orici, founder of the House of Nina Orici. He is a veteran of the New York City ball scene, and he's also the creative director of Les Ballets Afrique, which presents his inimitable mix of Vogue and African dance styles. And he's a highly respected teacher, not only of his own style, which he calls Afrique Fusion, but also of Vogue, of West African dance, and of Afrobeat. Here he is. No shade, no tea. Hey, dance edit listeners. My name is Omari Wiles. I am one of the legendary children of the NYC ballroom scene and now the founding father of the international royal house of Nina Orici. I am also the director of Le Ballet Afrique, a company that strives off of the diversity and identity that we show within our movement. As a black, gay, man, father, teacher, it is important for me to connect with my community on a more nurturing level. There's not many fathers in our scene, parents in our scene, who care for our scene. People of color within the LGBT community have struggled with acceptance, tolerance, respect, and the lack of opportunities. We are not seeing genuine allies speaking up for this community, specifically gay and transgender black bodies. Over the years, trans and cisgender men and women who identify as anything other than heterosexual have been frequently portrayed as a joke, a stereotype, or another burial on TV, a murder. Instead of who we are truly, and what we have successfully accomplished. As a gay black artist, the ignorance from heterosexual men and women should not be overlooked and made into a norm. We are not a joke. Our lives do matter. Our stories are told by those who look from the outside in. I believe with systematic racism, comes ignorance. Systematic ignorance has been taught and passed down from generation to generation. As many bad traits that we have seen over the years. We are judged, casted out, threatened, 
beaten, and killed for the stereotypes placed on the LGBT community. Some may say, we deserve this. Some judge us just because of our sexuality and think it's okay and make it okay for others to do the same. This has come in many faces. People of color, we have faced this, the same judgment, the same casting out, the same beatings, threats, the same killings. We shouldn't be seeing it and receiving it from our own. We need to change the narrative, make a new norm, get people to see and understand our lifestyle, who we are. We are measured by our skin tone and still separated by our body parts. What is it about the letter G that gets the girls riled up? What is it about the letter T that is so hard to swallow? It is not hard for people of color who identify as LGBTQ to walk hand in hand with our black heterosexual counterparts. Why? Because black lives matter. As a black gay artist, it is important that my work shows black culture and hold it to a higher standard than what the film, dance, music, and theater industries have consistently made us out to look like. We are not for just your entertainment. We are not just a joke, a key key. The art that I am creating with Le Ballet Afrique is going to help express true stories, feelings, emotions, and provide meaning to so many who misunderstand us, who have been trained, who have been nurtured to see us as the enemy. When we stand in the same skin and we're riding the same ride. Thank you to Amari for reminding us again of the absolute importance of intersectionality in all of our celebration of the arts. Yeah, thank you for sharing those beautiful and embracingly honest words. We really appreciate your your willingness to to share your voice and your perspective. Follow Amari on Instagram at Amari underscore Wiles to keep up with all of his projects, um, including New York is Burning, which is his commission from the Guggenheim Museum's Works and Process series. That was originally scheduled to premiere in the spring, but is now happening in the fall, fingers crossed. Um, please keep an eye out for that. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye everyone. The 
Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Nina. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.